Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we are so excited to have Bitten Janssen. Bitten is a close personal friend and colleague to our whole podcast team. She's a registered nurse, addiction specialist, a contributor to the Diet Doctor website, and she's the founder of Bitten's Addiction. She has been helping people recover from sugar flour processed food addiction for nearly 30 years. Inspired by her own story with addiction, she developed a passion to help others become aware of their relationship with these drug foods and now shows people the way to heal and recover from sugar addiction. Her mission? To spread knowledge about sugar addiction and to teach and train professionals how to screen, assess, evaluate, and diagnose sugar addiction using the sugar tool which she helped develop. Through this process, professionals can help individuals detox from their drug foods and find long-lasting recovery. Through her Facebook group, Sugar Bomb in Your Brain, she has connected those struggling with sugar addiction and now has over 8,000 members who support each other through the daily struggles with sugar addiction and also celebrate the victories that come along with recovery. She is definitely our Swedish sugar guru, and today we discuss why Bitten thinks that those who are addicted to bread have the worst addictions, is there a difference between binge eating disorder and or food addiction, what is addiction interaction disorder, and what you can start doing today to benefit your recovery. We also touch on whether food sugar addicts should fast or not. But stay tuned because we do have a whole episode with Dr. Tarman and Bitten discussing this topic and intermittent fasting coming up. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Well, thank you for being here today with us, Bitten. We just we just love you. So can you and I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so we just really wanted to get your take on, you know, can you just briefly explain what the sugar tool is, what makes it an important piece of long-term recovery? And really why people should have it done. Just can you summarize that for us? I know you've, you've done a lot of interviews on the sugar. So just why, why, do, why do people need this? Well, you know, when I started working many years ago in this field, people didn't even believe that food addiction was a diagnosis. We were ridiculed, you know, by healthcare professionals. There is no such thing as sugar addiction and, you know, sharp up and exercise more and eat less and baba. And I mean, I knew it was a horrible illness that people suffer and I suffered, you know, and I got help. So I wanted to share that. And as a nurse, I'm a professional registered nurse. uh, I don't like to take people into the hospital and guess what I should treat. Oh, is it a knee or is it the stomach? Don't tell me. I guess. I guess. I mean, that's absurd. You you guys hear that. So as a nurse, I want to know what am I treating? And uh, we need to have a diagnostic tool for addiction that's extremely important. We have two diagnostic international manuals, ICD-10, or very soon 11, and then DSM-5. They have been developed through the years and, you know, advanced and so forth. So addiction, food addiction should be in there. So I started to work with an instrument called ADIS, Alcohol and Drug Diagnostic Instrument that is you know, validated in Sweden as a diagnostic tool. So I just use that, but, you know, switch the questions into sugar, flour, processed food, sweets, whatever name you want to use. I used to ask every client that I meet, do you really know what you have loss of control over? And they all said, yes. I mean, (laughs) you know, everybody knows that because we have tried to not eat it for years. We try to eat a little bit of it for years, that didn't work. I mean, we know exactly what we should eat and not eat. So, you know, people ask me, what should I eat? And I said, I look at them and said, you know that. And they say, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, you know, we needed to sort of understand what is the uh, the foods that act as psychoactive drugs, like, you know, nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, 
cannabis, heroin, blah, 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 you know, benzodiazepines, opioids, and so forth. Because uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic for 35 plus years. And I know that this is exactly the same pattern, development, illness, the loss of control. It's just that our drug is not liquid like alcohol, you know, it's in another form. But it's the same pattern. And, you know, people used to say to me, I'm a food alcoholic. And I said, I understand what you mean. Totally. Yeah. And they said, oh, I thought I was crazy saying that. No, no, no. We know what you talk about. You and I know exactly. So then I started working with this tool, you know, and thought too that it's very important to have an instrument that is like a screening. You know, it indicates that it could be a problem. You know, the Uncope, six simple questions that anyone could take. It's on my website. You guys have it. Just fill in those and see, do I maybe have a problem? And that's a way to start being honest with myself and see that, oh, I'm pretending I have control. I've tried so many times. I'm not in control. I sneak, I hide, and I lie. I could, of course, you know, diagnose people by asking that, have you ever sneaked, hide, and lie about food, Clarissa? And you would say, yes, Molly, yes. Okay, you're an addict. But we don't, that's unprofessional. So instead, you know, I do this sugar interview, assessment, evaluation, based on those international criteria. It's not some questions we took out of thin air. We used it in instruments that are very verified, validated for reliability and all that, based on the international criteria. And that's what sugar is. It is 67 questions. And Uncope, the screening, is... uh, saying this indicates I have a problem, but it doesn't say if it is harmful use or addiction. And it doesn't say how severe it is. It doesn't say how many consequences I have, how many years have I suffered this illness. So if, uh, you know, you take the next step and do sugar, that's an in-depth interview. And uh, doing that, you get a very special relationship with the professional that do it on you. Together, you explore, you know, what this illness had done to you. You understand it's an illness. You know, you can take away stigma. You can really be friends with your illness. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, don't call it an addiction. That's such a bad word. And I said, no, 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 no. It is an addiction. Latins are enslaved, because you are. Addiction took you. You didn't take addiction. And I think this is so important for somebody to understand. To me, it was finally relief. I'm not nuts. I'm not crazy. I don't have a psychiatric weird illness. I don't have a bad character, you know, because I couldn't understand. How come I do good in other areas? But with the food, totally crazy. Totally. I promised myself and I broke it all the time. So understanding the addiction, the addicted brain and what this does to you, I think that is so important. So that's what sugar do. It gives you a chronological map of what the addiction has done to you and how severe it is, the consequences you have. And you can start your way into recovery. You get a map how to get out of the jungle to recovery. That's what sugar is. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about the word addiction because that is such a freeing word for me because I know I have a disease. So the things I do are not moral failings. It's because I have this disease, but there's also therefore a solution being abstinence from these psychoactive foods. So if I was someone who was going to take your sugar, how would you differentiate between whether someone's diagnosed as a harmful user and diagnosed with addiction? Well, actually, it can look very similar on the surface, you know. You can think that it is addiction and this harmful use or vice versa, because on the surface, they are very much alike. But remember that harmful use is more like uh, uh, eating because of emotional problems or stress or partying, having fun, the culture, you know, how many baking programs do you see on TV today? It's absolutely weird, sick. I mean, you know, bake here, bake there. Oh my God, it's food porn. But anyway, so, you know, so you do get consequences with harmful use, but there is one major difference. You're not obsessed. You do not, you know, lose control 
in the same way if you have harmful use that you do with addiction. And also it's very important to know the difference because with treatment, with the harmful user, you can teach moderation. You can teach coping strategies for stress. You can teach how to party without baking cakes. You can teach a lot of stuff there. You know, talk about emotions, deal with them, you know, your social life. Uh, with an addict, none of them going to work because addiction is a physical primary illness in your brain, in the reward center. You know, it's hijacked. It's an irreversible development of an illness. It's not going to go away. You can't cure it. So you need to find out. And I also say that an addict can stop, but not stay stopped. That's a very good criteria to see. Sure. If you threaten somebody, I lock you up in jail if you don't quit eating sugar for three months, they do it. But as soon as they can, they get back to it and more consequences. So that's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes so much sense. I think that's a really great criteria to kind of gauge it on. If if somebody's having questions, am I just an emotional eater or harmful user versus am I an addict? Think about if I were to be locked up today, get out three months later, am I going for that bag of potato chips? Am I going for that cake? Am I going for that bread? Right. That's, that's great. I love that. Thank you so much. So I, I know Clarissa and I had all these questions for you, but really bitten. We're just so excited to have you here and certainly we're going to have you back again. So I'm just putting that out there for the listeners to know, to, to stay tuned. You're coming back for more, but, but really, I think you touch on such an important point with what you just, you know, answered for us. So if you could plant that seed for anyone who may not be aware yet that food addiction may be at the root of their suffering, you know, so to speak, what would you say to them right now? Having, you know, given this background of, of where, who you are and where you're coming from and the tool, what would you say to that unknowing food addict? Well, I would say, you know, that, that moment when you have sneaked buying, you know, the drug food and you go home and you're excited and you have, you're like, you're, you're thinking, Oh God, I'm going to eat it now, but tomorrow I'm going to stop. And, you know, you're on that crazy stressed high to eat the drug because you bought the drug and you're thinking it's going to be the last time. Deep down inside, you know, it's not going to be the last time. You've thought, how many times have you thought that and done that? You know, and you start all over again. And also, you know, somewhere in the dark corner of your mind, you know what the consequence is going to be. When you wake up, hangover tomorrow, bloated like crazy, there is crumbs and, and food all around you. And, you know, you have to clean that up and you just hate yourself. And you think you did it to yourself. You don't understand that addiction took you, you know. So I want you to sit down and think about that scenario. Think about what happens when you're going to go and how do you feel when you buy the drug? How do you feel when you take the first bite? What happens then when you throw this into yourself? What happens when you wake up and think, you know, you're bloated, you can't eat anymore? The remorse after, you know, write down that scenario and start thinking, did I really willingly choose this or did it choose me? Because the problem with addiction is that it will fool you to think that you do this for a reason. Oh, I was stressed. Oh, I was sad. Oh, I had this emotion. But, you know, addiction creates this stuff in you because it wants the drug. So addiction comes first. And this is what you need to understand. You need to start putting the horse in front of the wagon. How many times have you gone to therapy or talked about your emotions? Did that stop your addictive eating? No, it did not, because that's not where the problem is. So this is what I want you to start pondering, that you're not a bad person. You know, this drug hooked you. Your, your brain is hijacked. You didn't cause it. You didn't make it happen. You're not a bad person. I want you to really understand that. And that we professionals, We've been there and we know how to get out of this jungle. You know, we know how to get connected because we were disconnected alone with the big lover food drug, you know. And so we can help you to have a life that is totally free, happy, joyous and free and serene, you know, eating healthy food and enjoying that and not obsessing about food, body, weight, you know, remorse, why did I do that? Why did I spend all this money on this? I mean, there's so many things you could uh, think about in that way. So that's the message that I would like to give to people, that please 
call somebody, you know, send an email tonight, send it to Molly, send to me, send to Clarissa. I promise you, we're going to take your hand, the outreached hand, and we're going to help you back. So please do that. Yeah, no, that's so helpful. Uh, That early detection piece, I mean, I wish I even knew of the concept of food addiction. For me, it was, oh, I have binge eating disorder because, you know, sometimes I lose control, but there are times I can control it. But I never had that piece of, I still obsessed about it all of the time. So I just only acted on it every now and then. So how do you find you're able to differentiate between somebody who thinks they have eating a binge eating disorder or someone who has food addiction? Okay. The only way to know that is to do sugar. Because when you do sugar, you know, if you have an addiction, then we also know. And since I told you, it's a chronological map over your whole life from your first symptom of a problem. You know, when you probably were four, five, six years old, that's when it starts. Uh, You can see that the starving, the restriction, the binging, the volume eating, you know, all these crazy behaviors came uh, many years later as a way of trying to control the monster, you know, the loss of control monster in your brain, in your reward center. You know, all the things you have done, you just could put these things, volume eating, binge eating, uh, emotional eating. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. We do a lot of things, you know, we diet, we count calories, Weight Watchers, I mean, you name it. We've done all kinds of crazy things, but we have come back to where we started, you know, sitting there with the drug, eating alone, you know, and just feeling miserable. I failed again. That's what we think. We didn't fail. The drug took us. The addiction took us. So this is very important to understand that you have to go into that uh, scenario to understand these things. And then you can start looking at what kind of behaviors have I developed due to this? Am I a diet addict? I mean, I try every new diet that comes around. You know, am I a binge eater? You know, I eat a huge amount at certain times and then I try to restrict and I starve for quite some time. And then, you know, I start eating again and then I can't stop. So I'm a volume eater. That's just behaviors that are because of the addiction if you're an addict. If you're not an addict, then you have another problem. And then I would refer you, you know, because I don't work with eating disorders. I work with addiction. That's my take. Was that clear? Definitely. So, you know, we've heard you, you know, we've been lucky enough to get to, to, to hear you lecture. We've, we've heard you on different podcasts, all the things bitten. And, you know, we've heard you stay over and over again, like bread addicts, you know, are kind of the, they have the worst addiction when it comes to the food, sugar, processed foods, whatever we want to call it. Right. So can you explain what you mean by this? And, you know, how is that, how is that worse than like the sweets, so to speak, or yeah, just what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, I know you work with all kinds of addictions. So I think you really, and you do too, Clarissa, so you guys will understand. Well, I would say it's like, you know, uh, the difference between an alcoholic that binge drink and a cannabis smoker that smokes every day. I mean, the cannabis smoker is not uh, noticing because they continuously uh, put the drug in the system so they don't see how incredible sick and addicted they become. They think they have a very normal behavior. The surrounding notices. Their neurons get very long. You know, it's a long, chewy connection in a way. And this is what happens to the bread users because they eat flour every day, pasta, bread, you know, whereas people like me that are, you know, were really hooked on ice cream and chocolate, we went and got, because that was sort of desserty. It wasn't, you know, like bread is food you know, in the normal people's world. So when we went and bought chocolate and ice cream, we bought a lot and more or less binge. And then we said, well, tomorrow I'm not going to do it again. Whereas people that are hooked on flour and bread, and flour is sugar. It is very potent sugar. And actually when you chew pasta and bread, you know, it becomes sugar in your mouth already because of the enzyme amylose that, you know, breaks down the starch. So you really, you know, on the high when you have it in your mouth. And then another thing that flour, you know, I don't think that it is biologically appropriate food. I don't think we should take, you know, grain and break it down 
uh, as fine as a flower and put it in our body. I don't think our body is very good at reading the molecule structure in it. And I also think that it destroys the villi, you know, the fuss in the intestine on our intestines. So I think that's what happens. So the problem with that is that it we takes up take up nourishment much less, you know, we, we, when we have a lot of flour in our stomach. And I think that that creates a tremendous amount of craving. The body doesn't think it gets any really, you know, good nutritional value of the food. So you need to eat a lot and you eat more bread and you eat more pasta and you eat so on. And so I think there are several factors that do it because what I see is that people that have, let's call it the bread addiction then, but flour, they have a very hard time quitting because they think that they, you know, it can't be so dangerous because it is food uh, and they have tremendous cravings and they relapse very easily. And when they relapse, they have a very hard time to get back up again. So it's more difficult to treat them. And the people that I have that are really volume addicts that have a hard time sticking to an abstinent food plan, they are bread lovers, bread and pasta lovers. 99 out of 100 are bread and pasta lovers. So I know that we need to work. I really wish that we could continue working more looking at oxytocin, what that does to satiety in our stomach, because I think there is a key factor in understanding what is going on with bread addicts and volume eaters. They are usually sort of hooked together. Yeah, that's actually touches on the next point I wanted to talk about. You know, I run into these clients who go on the keto and they get permission to be able to eat anything that are these ketogenic foods and they just consume these keto foods all day long. And in those cases, they tend to be volume eaters. And what does volume addiction look like and how do you recommend treating it for these kind of individuals who just aren't able to stop and their hunger hormones are not regulated and it's not signaling their brain that they don't need anymore. Yeah. Well, if I have somebody, you know, with severe consequences of that type of behavior, which I would call volatile blood sugar, which is a symptom list that people need to know about, because that is horrible. You know, you can feel miserable and think that you are absolutely crazy, but it is your blood sugar going up and down like crazy. I recommend that you start eating, you know, uh, three to six meals a day for a short period of time and that you have be, be in very close contact with your professional helper or a sponsor or whomever you have. So you break down a day's meal to start within maybe four, five, six times to eat, you know, to balance the blood sugar. And then maybe after three, four days, five, it's very individual. You have to really, you know, feel it for knowing what to do, listen to them. You start going down to three meals a day. And then you can start using coconut oil and uh, glutamine powder between the meals to keep your, your blood sugar balanced until you stabilize. Because if you don't do that, you know, these people just throw off in a binge eating and you have to start all over again. And then the next tool that is very important is to weigh and measure. And But my experience is that many people that work with weighing and measuring food plans for these people, they don't dare start high enough. I mean, you know, they have two restricted food plans. So these poor people go from, you know, eating this amount of food down, then they should suddenly eat this three times a day. It's not going to work. So you have to have a lot of guts as a counselor to go in high and then taper slowly. And also, I like to say that you start detoxing these clients with a very liberal, low-carb, high-fat diet. And then you go to a more stricter low carb before you slowly maybe go over to a keto. And keto doesn't have to be this mysterious thing measuring ketones and being obsessed with that. I used to say that keto is low carb minus whipped cream, cheese, uh, you know, dairy, except for butter. Keto is butter, eat butter. But, you know, a lot of people think that keto should be, you know, measuring your ketones all day and, you know, really eating. They are very obsessed about it. And I think those people have an addiction and need our help. Absolutely. And we've done some interviews recently where, you know, 
the people that we've been interviewing are in these circles. They're in the keto world. They're in the carnivore world. And, you know, they have their suspicions that food addiction is lurking there and, and people just don't know. And so talking about what you were just saying, like how to kind of get a client, you know, tapered down, that kind of thing. I know right now it's, it's January 6th at the time of this interview kind of deal. And, and so many people are like following, like who's on the wagon for keto and who's on the wagon for fasting. And, and certainly we don't want you to go into it too in depth. Cause like I said, we want you back bitten. We, we want you for more time. Um, but can you just briefly kind of talk about like why, in that tapering of that client and that kind of thing, we wouldn't want to suggest or, or maybe intermittent fasting or fasting in general, isn't like necessarily the right protocol for treating food addiction. Well, that's very simple, Molly, because we have the most sensitive brains of everybody. All these people are struggling with this. Our brain will, you know, hit us back, bang. So to try to force, uh, you know, after eating this drug, which is so potent, people don't understand how much damage uh, sugar and flour and sweeteners and processed food does to your brain. You know, just think that it gets around your stomach. Uh, no, no, no. It really hurts your brain more than anything. And you don't fool around with your brain. It's going to hit back. So it will be like if you force your brain, you know, into these extremes, you know, first you binge like crazy for three weeks over the holidays, and then you're going to try to starve and fast. Actually, that would be starving. It's not going to work very well because it's going to bounce back. So I like to say it's like, you know, you have this Pilates ball and you try to hold it under the water. I mean, try that. It's not going to work. Uh, you know, it's going to bounce back in your face. So you have to treat this in a professional way. You have to nudge you know, baby steps, take your, you have to heal your body. That's what you need to work on your brain. So you have to slowly adapt. You can't go from one extreme to the other. And also I like to say a lot of people, I'm very cautious, you know, talking using the word fasting, but I really enjoy the word restricted eating. Uh, I had Ben Asadi, you know, I interviewed him. So I'm going to put that out on my YouTube and he's wonderful. I mean, I had a wonderful talk and he told me that in America, people eat 17 to 23 times a day. Can you imagine what you do to your pancreas, to your insulin release? I mean, talk about, you know, trying to kill yourself with a knife and a fork and, and a soda or whatever you have. Uh, I mean, that is, we're not made for that. We are biologically not made for that. So, you know, I'm all for restricted eating, but you have to have maybe a medical abstinence in the beginning, helping somebody. You don't want people to faint and crash and feel miserable or go back into the drug. You want to help them out of this. And then you adjust, but we're not made to eat uh, more than three times a day but restricted eating, that could be, I mean, I eat dinner around five and I don't eat maybe until, you know, late morning the next day. That is fasting or restricted eating. It depends on what word you want to use. Because, you know, to eat a lot is, we're not made for that. So I personally have had more clients reach out to me during this pandemic than ever I, before. So I was wondering if you could speak to why you think that might be happening. I know you've spoken about addiction as a primary illness and definitely the individuals that have come to see me don't necessarily have trauma or, you know, early childhood adverse experiences. So can you speak to kind of both those things, addiction as a primary illness and why you think individuals might be struggling more now than they ever have before? Well, you know, primary illness, with that, we mean that addiction is not caused by something. You know, happy people become addicted, unhappy people become addicted. I'd just like to say that, you know, if you're going to try to find a cause that you're trying to fix in order to fix your addiction, you're totally in the wrong universe. I mean, come back on earth. Uh, you can't do that. So, you know, addiction has to be treated as a primary illness. And of course, you know, a lot of people have bad things happening to them from small bad things to big traumas. And then they also become addicted, but it's not, you know, those things are not causing the addiction. You have to keep that apart. But the sad thing is that there is a big misconception in the world 
that addiction is due to some kind of um, uh, weakness or trauma or emotional problem. So, you know, you start looking at it from that point of view and you don't help people take away the drug and understand that the drug caused them to be weak, caused them to experience maybe a minor thing as a huge trauma. And I also see a lot of therapists that don't understand addiction uh, treat uh, talk therapy with trauma. And what they do is make it 10 times worse because they entrench the trauma. They entrench it. I mean, neurons that wire together fire together. So this person is like a walking trauma. It's like, oh, I'm eating like this because you know, I had a trauma. Come on, I can help you. Take away the food and we can heal so much of your emotional problems or stress problems or what have you. And I think, you know, the thing that I used to say when people come to me for my intensives and I ask them, why are you here? And they say, oh, well, you know, I'm here for the food. And then they say, well, I have many problems, but here I am to take care of the food. After four days with me, I asked them, what did you learn these days, four or five days? Well, I learned that I have only one problem and that's my addiction. And the other things that I thought were problems are consequences. So I'm going to go home and deal with my one problem, the addiction. And they do. And lo and behold, they recover. So I think it is very important that we keep those things apart, you know. So it's not that addicts don't have traumas that need to be repaired or worked with or talked about. But you, can, you can't do that unless you deal with addiction first. That's my take. Absolutely. So I, I couldn't agree with you more been working in this field for, for 15 years, which is not nearly, I mean, you have been around for so much longer as far as seeing the progression of the, the medicine, the addiction medicine, the, the science, all the things I just couldn't agree with you more. And it's just so refreshing to hear somebody say that because I feel like in my community, my local community, I've been, I've had experienced pushback from other providers in my insistence that, you know, trauma, 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 we all have, I mean, again, we've had other guests, right? We've all had adversities. We've all had little T traumas. We've all, maybe not all of us have experienced big T traumas, but we've certainly all had these adverse experiences. Of course. And talking about them over and over and over again is not how we get better. And sometimes I wonder if that's like a reflection of like, we had, you know, prior generations that went through world war one, world war two, the great depression, and they didn't talk about anything. And now it's been like this other, you know, the other end of the spectrum. Now we have to talk about it. Yeah. Now we have to talk about it to death. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. It's just, it has never proven useful in any of the, the clients that I've worked with. And I tell them from the beginning, like, I don't, not that I am opposed to hearing about what happened. Like I'm here to sit with you through that. If that you, you think that's going to help you, but I just, I just don't think that's going to help you. And it's just really refreshing from a clinical perspective or a professional perspective to hear another professional say that. So hearing that and, and, and just kind of piggybacking off of Clarissa's question about like COVID and the lockdowns and, and oh yeah, get, getting this, um, you know, reach uh, outreach from, from people more now than ever, you know, how can we help them to understand if they're a normal eater versus an emotional eater versus a food addict, if they're hearing this now, and now they're really starting to question, right? Like that self-diagnosis issue that can help and with people, right? Like, Ooh, that's me. Ooh, that's me. Like, and now I'm, I'm seeking more help because I find that I'm eating more. Like, how could we really help define for them if you're a normal eater? And maybe this is just a blip on the radar versus this is an emotional problem. You do need to go address those traumas because that's how you're going to address the problem versus that food addiction piece. Well, you know, again, I come back to doing a sugar on them, the screening and the sugar, then you know for sure in which group are they? Is this a social user that have a blip on the radar, as you say? I totally understand that. Or is it a harmful user that got worse? You know, more harmful use, more consequences, or is it really an addiction hiding here? Then they need very special professional help from trained people. But I also like to say about the COVID, I think, you know, at least in Sweden, I don't know about other countries, but, you know, one of the highest risk factors is, you know, hyperinsulinemia. And there's a lot of researchers out there now starting to talk about, you know, that too much uh, insulin production you know, is causing all kinds of illnesses in our body. I just got a book on my bookshelf called Why We Get Sick by Benjamin Bickman that I enjoy reading. 
And, you know, and I have followed this talk about the metabolic dysfunction for years. So I understand that and uh, read about uh, Joseph Croft and, and many more. So, you know, I, I understand totally. And I think, you know, that people out there also start understanding that metabolic syndrome, metabolic dysfunction is a very, very dangerous, you know, risk factor for covid so that's not, you know, only that they are stressed by the COVID that they eat more. This is starting to sink in that, you know, oh my goodness. And, you know, I really don't want to be sick in this. So I'm going to start uh, cut down. And then they realize they can't cut down. So I used to say that we, you know, addiction counselors, we are the last house on the street. They come to us when they try everything else. So welcome, welcome, come to us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think there are many factors like that, actually, not only the stress. And, you know, I think the, the, that we can't connect, you know, to not be able to hug your friends and your family, to be isolated. And I think old people are the people that have the worst today. And I can see here in Sweden, you know, there's a lot of sweet cakes and cookies in the old people's home, which is, of course, not good. But, you know, uh, so it's really a little bit of a crazy world we have out there. So I heard you mention Ben Azadi and uh, Benjamin Bickman. And I know there's so many other amazing individuals who speak to kind of food addiction ideas and food addiction recovery. Who do you listen to? And if I'm somebody at home who's looking to maybe get started on this journey into understanding the world of food addiction, who should I listen to? Well, I would start to go out on Food Addiction Institute's page, and there I find a lot of referrals. And then, of course, you know, you could start following me on Twitter and see who I follow, because there I follow a lot of the research, the latest information, like Brian Lenskis, Dr. Tro. Uh, you know, there are many more. David Unwin, Asim Malhutra. I could probably, you know, burp up 40 more. <laughs> you know, there's, I, I almost don't dare mention some because then I miss some. Well, Dr. Lustig, Nicola Vina. I mean, there are so many that I follow. And, you know, go out and look at the Quit Sugar Summit. You know, that, that is specialized in this. I mean, it's coming soon. I think it's the 15th or something you know, sugaraddiction.com or quitsugarsummit.com. And if you go to my website, you have videos and pods. And I mean, if I look at you, you network Clarissa. So you have several people. So follow Clarissa, follow Molly. She has a newsletter, you know, Vera Tarman. I mean, God knows how many we can, you know, add. You guys could add a lot of people, I'm sure. I'm looking in my bookshelf here. Joni Fland. You know, process food addiction, food addiction reset. Oh, look at that. I mean, this is just a minor part of I have another bookshelf in my living room. <laughs> we, we go there and look. I mean, you go nuts. Uh, you know, uh, so I follow a lot of um, lately. Uh, one of my favorites is Paul Early. You know, he's the boss of the ASAM. I had the incredible uh, honor to talk to him a while ago because I love his book. You know, this one, Recovery Mind Training, uh, because, and he said one thing, because I listened to him many years ago about addiction memory circuit and cue-induced craving and stress-induced craving. One of my favorite lectures. I've used that knowledge for years and years, you know, when I teach. But one thing he says that I love is that uh, we have to understand addiction with neuroscience and we have to work with recovery with neuroscience. No woo-woo, you know, neuroscience. And that's what you guys do. And that's what we do. We are professionals. We are trained. We know how to do this. It's not, not something we came up with, you know. We have trained. We have learned. We have studied. We practice. Uh, we listen to our clients. We learn from them. Uh, we develop new methods, new ways of doing it. So, I mean, that's what we do. And we work with neuroscience and addiction medicine. And I love addiction medicine. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I love, I love, like you said, like follow you, go see who you follow, because there are so many people out there that are talking about this in some form or another. And I think that's an important message that we want our listeners to hear, right? We don't want to speak just to the people who already know, yep, food addiction is my story. We want to 
be planting that seed for other people, you know, and these people like Ben Bickman, Ben Azadi, you know, Ivor Cummings, like all those people, right? Like they're touching on the neuroscience that is directly related to our issue if we self-identify or, or have been diagnosed, right? With sugar addiction, food addiction, whatever it might be. So, so following these people certainly, and, and reading these books, looking at these books, what else do you think people could be doing? Like if our listeners are at home right now and they're thinking, I just don't have the money to work with somebody one-on-one, join a group, whatever, you know, like group therapy, that kind of thing. What do you think people could be doing right now in their home for, for very little or no cost to just kind of get themselves started on a recovery journey? Well, first of all, you can join, you know, Sugar Bomb in your brain on Facebook. That's it. We have, I think it is 8,500 members and we have some absolutely extraordinary admin there, Molly Painshop and Clarissa Kennedy, among others. So, I mean, you guys are there, Anna Freeling, David Wolfie. I don't have so much time to hang there because I teach so much, but you know, you guys are there. So it doesn't cost you anything. You know, it's a closed group. So you can be safe in there. So that's the first thing I would do, you know. The second thing, one I forgot, is dietdoctor.com. You know, he he works with keto, but he doesn't really work with food addiction. But he has a lot about food addiction. And I've done some videos there about food addiction. And it's, you can be there a month for free. So there's a lot of stuff like that you could try. Uh, I would absolutely recommend that you get Vera Tarma's book, Food Junkies. I recommend that book every day almost to at least two, three people, you know, and I write about it whenever I can. So, I mean, that is not a very expensive thing to do. And also there are self-help groups, you know, that you could join. And uh, you, Molly, have a group that people could join. And you, Clarissa, are starting, you know, a group. So um, David Wolfie has a group. I mean, there are so many things. If you really want to do this, you know, And what I encourage you to do is to get knowledge. Get knowledge about what is addiction? What is an addicted brain? What is a reward center? Prefrontal cortex, you know, neocortex, what's that, you know? How do I feed and care for my brain? I used to say, you can't go to the hardware store to buy stuff for your brain. The way you heal and feed your brain is with food. And, you know, it's very simple. It is so simple. You'd be amazed. And you know, in the beginning, people think like this, oh my God, and then I can't eat this or I can't drink this. So they look at everything they can't and said, quit that. Start looking at what you can eat. You know, all the good stuff you can eat, you can enjoy and ask people. You know, one thing that I work with in my group is that if I have a problem, you know, I call people that I know understand that problem. I said, hey, Molly, this, I'm going to do this and that. What would you do if it was your problem? What would you do, Clarissa, if it was your problem? I love that way of working. And I mean, I learn so much about life just by asking other people that little question. What would you do if it was your problem? Sometimes they say, I have no idea. Never been there. I don't know. And then I ask somebody else. I mean, and that's a way of connecting too. People like to be asked, you know, tell me what you do. I'm listening to you. So I love that you, I can see all the books on the back of your bookcase and knowing that you have a library of more. First question, have you read every single book? Second no. question, <laughs> because I don't, I, I have a library myself. And like, sometimes people call these things healthy addictions, right? And I definitely feel like new knowledge for me is a bit of an addiction. And there, there is this thing we work with called addiction interaction disorder. And you were actually the first person that highlighted this for me and really mind blown. So could you speak to that a bit and what that might look like for other people when they, you know, remove the sugar flour grains from their food plan? What should they be look, watching for? Okay. Uh, first of all, I like to say that I don't uh, agree with the term healthy addiction. To me, addiction is deadly. It can never be healthy. I'm going to give you another word. We have a passion. You know, we have a passion for books. I have a passion for books. You know, I see a new book and I think, oh, God, I got to have it. No, don't buy it. You haven't read this one. No, I got to have it. I got to have it. And then I can sit and drool for a while. And sometimes I read it or then there come another new ones, you know, and so forth. But, you know, 
I'd like to keep the word addiction for what's hurting, you know, for what we have consequences for. And addiction interaction disorder is that once an addict, always an addict, because we have developed a pathway in our brain that will be activated by a lot of stuff. Actually, Stefan Brenner, he's a professor at Karolinska, he said to me once when I asked him, you know, he said, well, probably everything that's fun or feels good, you could be addicted to. That's the nature of the reward center because it wants us to do stuff that's good for us, like eat, have babies, you know, and other stuff, rewards. And I totally agree with you. Learning new things has been my key, you know, in uh, recovery. I think that's saved me from relapse and death, that I'm curious and I want to know stuff. So I read stuff and I ask people, and I call them and what do you mean with that? And how could that be? And is that so? And blah, blah. I'm a very curious person. And I think that's been one of my ways to recover most, you know, and then, of course, doing it because I have to learn things that I don't always like, you know, you know, in recovery, we have to do things. I don't want to do it. But I do it because I know it's good for me, you know, whatever. But the addiction interaction disorder is that one thing we see is that sugar is a gateway drug. It starts with sugar. And we know that when we do this, the alcohol and drug diagnostic instrument and the sugar instrument and even games, when we look at people that have a gaming addiction, that it all starts with sugar. Even sex and relationship addiction, you know, starts with sugar. So sugar let me say it paves the way for other addictive behaviors or psychoactive drugs. So that's why uh, a lot of people ask me when I do the uncope, why do you ask about alcohol? Because I once did uh, an examination of 202 patients that were sugar addicts. How many had a problem with alcohol? 74%. And I saw somebody write, you know, on Twitter today that they recommend their clients on low carb keto to take away alcohol because they didn't lose weight. And once they took away alcohol, they started losing weight, but they didn't want to take away alcohol. How come? You know, because it's very important to them. And also a lot of us think that, oh, you know, it's part of the denial process towards surrendering is to think that we can negotiate. And they, oh, okay, well, Clarissa told me to cut away sugar and flour. I do that. But, you know, I could have my wine. I'm not going to tell her about the wine so I can have that. Or uh, suddenly I, I go out shopping like crazy or I start doing other weird things. That's very common. And that's why I tell counselors, you have to treat the addicted brain, not the drug. You can't just deal with alcohol or sugar or, I mean, you have to treat the whole brain because otherwise that addicted part will pick up something new you know, whatever, and become crazy and obsessed and all that, hiding, sneaking, lying. So you could shortly say that addiction interaction disorder is one illness, many outlets. So as a professional, you have to look for other outlets and help your client to see that, you know, it's easy to step into the next addiction or the next addiction, but let people have their passion. I mean, you have to be able to distinguish between addiction and passion and help your clients to be, you know, in their new life, to be passionate about, you know, new things, reading, growing roses, dogs, what have you. Passion is very important. I couldn't agree more. And I think, I think the, the, the message I'm kind of taking from you too, right. Is like, you keep coming back to this, ask people, right? Like get knowledge, be curious, ask people. I I certainly do not hear you say, go be a maverick, go be a cowboy, go do it on your own. And that's the only way to do this. I keep hearing you say like, seek out help. What are your thoughts on that as far as community and and asking for help and working with a professional or 12 steps or, or smart recovery or any of those other things? Well, Molly, uh, I have probably met uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of clients for these 35 years that's been in this field. And I have never seen anyone do it themselves and be totally happy. People can, you know, put a cork in the bottle. Uh, They can, as I say, white knuckle it. I mean, I'm not going to eat that. Yeah. But I don't see them be passionate and vivacious and joyous, you know, because what happened when you do that, you don't heal the brain. Do you see what I mean? 
you don't explore the whole possibility of your wonderful brain. You just, all your energy goes to not do something instead of, oh, God, I want to do this, and I want to learn this, and I want to be there, and I want to develop, I want to grow as a human. So that's a big difference between putting the cork in the bottle or, you know, throw out the, the, that food and, you know, just eat the right food. But you don't grow as a human being. You don't develop your spirituality. You don't develop your emotional part, you know, your neocortex. So, of course, you can be miserable not eating sugar, flour and, and processed food and just not eating it. But, I mean, how fun is that? Instead of having fun. Do you see the difference, what I mean with that? So I don't. And also, if you are that kind of white knuckling it, one tiny, tiny part of a bite, you know, into one food will trip you into a hell of a relapse and you might never get up again uh, because you don't have any emotional immunity system, you know, defense, which you have if you recover and grow your brain to its highest potential and your body, of course. Yeah, it's so true. I think my recovery people are my favorite people because I can be thinking something absolutely wild in my head and message it to a recovery person. And they're like, oh yeah, me too. I was crazy today too. And we kind of commiserate over it. Whereas if I had to actually go to just some of the regular people I interact with, they would be like, oh, shame. (laughs) And I know exactly. That's th- those I, are not my people. Well, no, that's what I love when you and I WhatsApp. You know, <laughs> we throw these crazy things back and forth. I know exactly what you mean. I start laughing like crazy. It's true. It's I a totally different it. yeah. language. It's my favorite. It is too. a different language, you know. And I'm the same. I love to hang with my people in the recovery programs. I just can't help it. But we have a special language. Yeah, it's and so I, true. I, I'm, I'm more like I need to behave myself a little bit yeah. when, when I'm with people, normal people. We can't be the party monster that's no, no, inside no, of no, us no, all. No, no, I have to be <laughs> sharp up and be nice, you know, a little bit more square and calm. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to ask you our signature question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction or food recovery, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, if I look back at my teenage year when I was on this new diet that was, you know, the the miracle diet and then the next miracle diet and uh, struggling with my body and feeling fat. Although I look at pictures, I wasn't fat. I was probably insulin swollen. You know, that's what I was with today about, you know, insulin and all that. I felt fat, but I really wasn't. You know, and all the agony, you know, and, and misery thinking that I was a bad person because I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't hold the darn Pilates ball under the water. It blew up in my face all the time. And I thought, oh, I'll try a new one, new diet. I would just, you know, ha- uh, hold her and tell her, you know what? There is another way. It is a very, very beautiful way with lots of freedom. Let me teach you, you know, what that way is all about. That's what I probably would like to say to her, if I could. That's beautiful. That I love that so much. So we're going to wrap it up because we know you are a very busy person. So how do our listeners find you, Bitten? What is the best way for them to find you, to follow you, to contact you, whatever it might be? And we'll certainly put it in our show notes, but if you just want to shout it out, where can where can we find you? Well, you know, uh, my website, bittensaddiction.com slash en, you know, the English version is, is okay. My Bitten Johnson page, you know, on Facebook is pretty full. So, you know, I think I'm closing in on 5,000 people soon. So that's not the best way to go. But go to my Bitten's Addiction, my business page. You can follow me there on Instagram. Although I'm not, a, uh, you know, I'm not a lover of Instagram, basically because I'm a technical idiot and I don't know so much how you post things there yet. And and on, you can find me on Twitter. And you can direct mail me or go into the groups, you know, Bitten's Addiction, uh, Sugar Bomb in Your Brain. That's probably where you also can find, at least not if if you don't find me really there, but you find people that know what this is all about and can answer questions and share. So 
uh, that's basically what. And I like to point out too that at this point, I'm not taking on clients. Uh, I only teach professionals. But if you are listening to this now and you suffer and you want uh, to reach me, please email me because I do answer every email and I will refer you. I will help you, you know, tell me what the problem is, where do you live, you know, what do you want help with? If you write that to me, I promise that I will answer you back and I will connect you with somebody that can help you. Awesome. Okay, I have one more question, if I can just sneak it in, because it's something that comes up all the time when I'm talking to people is that abstinence is restriction. And I don't feel abstinence is restriction. I feel for me, it's freedom. But this is more that eating disorder world, that diet mentality world, that if you restrict foods, it's going to equal a bigger binge in the long run. So what is your feeling on abstinence being restriction, etc.? Of course, it's not restriction. I mean, if somebody is dying from peanut allergy and somebody tells you you almost died here in the emergency room and you're allergic to peanuts, you know, uh, and that person will say, well, I'm going to stay away from peanuts, you know, and I'm going to be a very happy, healthy person. Fine. To me, it is sort of on that level, you know. So somebody that feel that abstinence is restriction, they have not surrendered that they have an addiction. It is their illness talking, the addicted reward center wanting the high, wanting the drug in a sneaky way. You know, it's restriction. It's not. Come on, you know, if you're going to die from it. So what, what do you mean restriction? That's what I say. Tell them, you know. And also the moderation people, Grow up, you guys, and learn about addiction. You know, if, if somebody takes away something and then they binge it, that's called relapse in our world. And it's because they haven't learned everything about how to live in recovery yet. We haven't had time to give them all the tools. So relapse is part of recovery. It's not failure. It's I'm not saying that you should plan your relapses. You know, that's not what I mean. But if you relapse, you're not a failure. You don't have to kill yourself. Hey, brush, brush your safe up and get up on the road again and call somebody and talk to them and tell them. And you're going to learn. I, I used to tell people, some of my relapses have been the best teaching lesson ever about this illness. You know, I thought I had it. I know what to do. Boost. The drug took me, you know. It, it was little sneaky things, you know, that little, I call the illness red dog. It was whispering. Oh, you don't have to bring food there, or you can have a little bit of this, you know, like the low carb with some dark chocolate. Sure, babe, you know, boom. And there we go. So, I mean, it's been stuff like that. And I had to go back and look, you know, what did I do that I shouldn't have done? What should I have done that I didn't do? So, all that was, I had a wonderful sponsor that taught me how to learn from the relapse, how to do a relapse intervention, how to go back and go back and, and you know, see how do I revise my recovery plan? That's all it was. I didn't die. I learned a lot. So that's what that, you know, taking away the drug food and then uh, binging on it, that's a relapse. So yeah. eating disorder, people need to learn about that. It's so true. Relapse is really an opportunity for us and a prevention tool for next time. Yeah, so absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that answer. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much, Bitten, for joining thank us today. Thank you for doing this. Thank the God, Swedish sugar much. guru. <laughs> <laughs> I talk much. Cut away if you need to. Oh, no, no. Never. I love it all. Well, yes. thank you so much. We were delighted to have you and we're excited to be able to have you back again in the future. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. 
Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>